0: It's a great pleasure to be back to wright Pat. I came to wright Pat in in 1986. At that time, uh, uh, General Tom McMullen was running uh, Aeronautical Systems Division, and I was here uh, through the uh, McMullen, uh, Bill Thurman, and Mike Lowe era. And uh, it had been, it was supposed to be sort of a waypoint as I went on and did other things, but I have to tell you, looking back at my career, the time I spent here at wright Pat was among the most enjoyable that I spent in my entire Air Force career. I just touched <laughs> on the work they did that paid off in the weapons. Shadowed the uh, involvement of the Air Force and Wright Patterson as well in the long watch in Korea that has continued to the present day. Uh, It's 60 years since the invasion of Korea by North Korea, and it's a story that's yet uh, uh, unfinished. You know, we don't quite know how this will turn out. Uh, We know that we're dealing with a a regime. Uh, that is uh, very calculating in the North, uh, it, it has the appearances of irrationality, there is some rationality in irrationality and in that, that posture of behavior and Kim Jong-il is certainly proving to be a worthy son to Kim Il-sung who of course triggered the original Korean War uh, in, in collaboration with Mao and with uh, uh, Joseph Stalin. But looking at the Korean War, uh, I think we, we see this war as uh, a war that involves an, an awful lot of aspects of the American national defense story. Uh, certainly as that story has played out since 1945. It was a war like, like many of the wars that we have fought that was thrust upon us, it was a war that was unexpected. It was a war that was a come as you are party, so to speak, we had to produce, improvise and work on a scramble. Uh, it was a war that taught us a lot of lessons and it's a war that I think needs constant study because as I said it's, it's still unfinished uh, and, uh, and we still don't quite know uh, how it will play out. Uh, we've just had an episode uh, within the last several months with which North Korea took it upon itself to sink a ship on the high seas and uh, so far seem, uh, seems to have gotten away with that and uh, it's quite interesting to see how this may, uh, may play out ultimately. So with that let's uh, launch off and uh, see exactly what happened around the time of the Korean War and then get into the war itself and some of the, uh, the aspects uh, of the conflict and lessons learned that we may pick up from that. The United States had come out of the Second World War, of course, as a supreme premier power, uh, it had done that with World War I as well. We had been very, very fortunate that in the Second World War, uh, as in the First World War, with the exception of the attack upon Pearl Harbor, with the exception upon fighting uh, up in, in the Aleutians, uh, in, in what was then American territory, the war had largely left us unscathed in terms of our direct uh, uh, geostrategic involvement. <clears throat> and as a result, we had a very powerful, uh, robust economy we had a very powerful industrial machine. And we were very much looking for the same sort of thing that we did in the 1980s at the end of the Cold War, we were looking for a peace dividend. So in the half decade that occurred between 1945 and 1950, we had a number of changes here that really signaled some of the the uh, circumstances that would play a role in shaping what, uh, what uh, happened then with uh, Korea. We had a tremendous drawdown of American forces. It was a pell-mell, drive to draw down. It was not undertaken in any systematic or organized fashion, uh, much uh, unlike uh, the way that we had a drawdown at the end of the Cold War. And as a result, there was a great deal of chaos and disruption introduced into the national defense system. It occurred at the same time that we were having a tremendous transformation in the technology of flight. The airplane had been invented in 1903, of course, by two brothers from right here in Dayton, Ohio, And we had had then the the, uh, progressive refinement of the airplane through the 20s and 30s. We had had the introduction of the all-metal aircraft. We had had the introduction of the the high-performance monoplane. We had had the refinement of the piston engine, the propeller combination. But then we had had something that overturned it all. And that was the introduction of high-speed aerodynamic theory encapsulated visually in the swept wing and the delta wing. And, of course, we had the introduction of the turbojet engine. We had the development of the powerful liquid fuel rocket engine as well. And these all transformed us and gave us a new era of high-speed flight, the potential of long-range missiles. And then added to that, of course, were two other revolutions that were critically important. One was the atomic revolution that gave us both atomic weaponry and atomic power and then on top of that the electronic revolution which of course has refined everything about the way we do business including the way that this briefing is presented to you tonight. We had had as well the establishment of a new independent service uh, and that was of course the United States Air Force. Now the establishment of the United States Air Force represented the fulfillment of a dream that went back at least as far as 1917. For, for those partisans typified by Billy Mitchell, at, at whose name we should genuflect, uh, who, of course, was, was the, the, the most visible symbol of an individual who was, um, who was championing the cause of an independent uh, Air Force co equal with the, with the U.S. Army and the U.S. Navy. We probably would not have had that had it not been for the wartime performance of the Army Air Forces under General Hap Arnold. General Hap Arnold. Uh, had uh, crafted in the 1930s, had been one of those that had crafted in the 1930s a tool that was extremely powerful (laughs) and extremely crucial to the success of the Allied victory. And as a result he had impressed an individual who was very, very important. That individual happened to be Dwight Eisenhower who became Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army in the post World War II era. So when a debate broke out in the Congress in the 1940s, late 1940s, about whether the United States Air Force or the United States Army Air Forces at that time should have an independent existence, Eisenhower said yes, absolutely, they have won that right in terms of their performance in the Second World War. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower was one of the greatest friends that the United States Air Force ever had and we should uh, recognize him as such. That precipitated at a time of a drawdown in national defense monies and a look to apply money in other directions. That precipitated a very sharp and brutish and nasty roles and missions debate uh, debate among all the services. It was a very odd debate, Uh, but it was encapsulated in the fight that was typified by those who believed in the B-36 for long-range power projection, those uh, those who believed in aircraft carriers. There were many other issues as well. Uh, The Army went after the Marine Corps, Uh, the Navy was uncertain of its relationship with other services, this was the kind of thing that was very, very divisive and, and, and left a corrosive effect that I think to a great degree still affects the, the joint service relationships of the nation today. And it was played out against a series of very strong uh, global challenges as we saw the predictable world that we had envisioned in 1945 transforming itself into something very unpredictable, very dangerous and we started to see the emergence of what was termed an Iron Curtain and the bipolar structure that we we came to know as the Cold War. Now, what to do? You know, what to do about American power? Harry Truman, a remarkable individual in his own right, Harry Truman launched a presidential committee to study air power and how air power might be applied to meet the needs of the United States. It was called the Finletter Commission. It was headed by Thomas Finletter. And they issued a report in early January 1948, right after the creation of the United States Air Force, right after the first supersonic flight. And it had this remarkable quote, which I think is really interesting. The statement in the middle is quite quite powerful, but it is the Air Force and Naval Aviation on which we must mainly rely. There was no question in the mind of the Finletter Commission and there was no question really in the minds of Truman and for that matter presidents afterwards that if you took a look at the weapon of choice in terms of determining the international balance of power and maintaining this balance of power in the face of rising threats that that had to be the air weapon. Now let's put into perspective some of these transformations we talked about. Let's take a look for example at the turbojet revolution. The piston engine propeller driven airplane had won World War II but it was obsolescent even at the moment of its victory. And we saw very, very quickly the introduction of turbojet aircraft. we indeed had been fighting them from one thousand nine hundred and forty four into one thousand nine hundred and forty five if you take a look at the nazi jets and taking a look at at the post war era as we saw the force structure of the United States and what we would have to do with this force structure, uh, it was quite obvious that we would we would have to adjust to this new jet era and incorporate jet propulsion uh, into into our military forces. If you looked at, at fighter aircraft. Uh, qualities for example. The uh, data that I have shown before you on this slide comes from a comparative Navy flight test evaluation that was made at Patuxent River, Maryland where they took their hottest propeller driven airplane and they put it against one of the new Lockheed P-80 shooting stars and they found as you would expect that the P-80 was slower to get off the ground but boy once that sucker got in the air that was a very very different issue indeed. If we take a look at this in terms of the nature of the, uh, air, uh, the, the development of aerospace technology and the, the evolution of aerospace technology, I think it's remarkable that in four years you see a doubling of aircraft flight speeds. Uh, the P-51 in 1944 was, uh, roughly speaking, the fastest operational propeller driven American fighter aircraft at that time. It was a remarkable aircraft. Uh, The Bell X-1, supersonic research airplane, which of course admittedly is just that, a research airplane, nevertheless in 1948, you see flies obviously more than twice as fast. The early turbojets, for all their problems, all their uh, not necessarily high level of reliability, their relatively low thrust levels, their relatively mediocre performance uh, during takeoff, their inability to do slam starts and things like uh, movements in the throttle, things like that, nevertheless, if you take a look at them, that early turbojet that produced about three to four thousand horsepower was effectively doubling engine power over the best piston engines of the time, and beyond three hundred miles an hour. when you took a look at the at the ratios, of course, it was going much beyond this and the early rockets themselves were giving you the capability of exceeding the speed of sound very very quickly. To put this in comparison for the United States Air Force and the United States Navy and when we look at Korea we have to look at both of those constructs. uh, It's very interesting to take a look just over a decade in fighter aircraft performance. Taking a look at if you will the leading fighter aircraft design or the cutting edge fighter aircraft design uh, in service of each service at that particular time. This is the transformation in flight that you see, a transformation in configuration, a transformation in propulsion, and a transformation in performance. I think the Navy, in some respects, underwent an even more dramatic transformation. If you take a look at top-end Navy uh, fighter of 1940 and you compare it in 1950 to the top-end Navy-sponsored research airplane, we have the first Mark II airplane, which will exceed Mark II in 1953, the Douglas Skyrocket, And, and of course, the the qualities of speed that you see there uh, really really speak for themselves. So let's take a look, then, at this in conjunction with the global perspective. Uh, Those five years from 1945 to 1950 were extremely uh, tumultuous, difficult, and challenging years. We had uh, a collapse, basically, of the wartime... Uh, if you will, era of good feelings between uh, Joe Stalin and the rest of the world and that took down the Eastern European democracies that that formed shakily after 1945 by 1948-1949 they were all rolled up. You had the launching of an insurgency in Greece that was a very bitter uh, insurgency. It it, uh, took quite a bit of, of difficulty to eradicate. We had French attempts, which I think were ill-founded, to restore their empire in Indochina, and that led to no, uh, no level of misery uh, that we can possibly imagine, going all the, no small level of misery going all the way through into China and into Vietnam, of course. We had a Soviet blockade that launched the Berlin airlift. That was the first great test of the United States Air Force, which it met, of course, as you well know very, very well. We had, in 1949, the detonation of a Soviet atomic bomb, thanks in large measure to espionage and what they had learned from us, we had the collapse of the Shang regime in China, Shanghai Kai-shek uh, falling to Mao Zedong, and then we had evidence uh, thanks to the Venona program, of uh, signals intercept program, uh, we had evidence of aggressive Soviet espionage into the United States across all levels uh, of government, into the military, uh, into the uh, industrial community as well. So we really were facing some very very difficult challenges. Given this, it nevertheless surprises me a very great deal that when we take a look at Korea, it was both unanticipated and unexpected. Now here's Korea within the regional context. Dean Acheson was Secretary of State at the time, and I think in retrospect Dean Acheson was probably a a reasonably good guy. But having said that, he dropped one real clangor. In January of 1950, he said that basically the United States zone of interest and security in the Far East basically passed uh, through uh, Japan, Ryukyu, and Okinawa, and obviously it did not include the Koreas. Did this play a role in accelerating the interest of uh, Mao uh, Zedong and and, uh, Kim Il-sung in possibly changing the future of Korea in, in association with Joe Stalin? Well, we don't really know, we haven't really seen the papers to any great degree out of the Communist side to know that, but the indications are certainly that it did. The bottom line is Korean uh, relations which had deteriorated really uh, in the two Koreas, and I'll get into this shortly, uh, from the, the moment of the end of the Second World War really in 1945, there have been shooting incidents in the late 1940s, there have been mass attempts at infiltration in the late 1940s, there were provocations on both sides. All this came uh, due in June of 1950 with the North Korean invasion of South Korea. Now, it immediately forced an American response. Now, we could talk here about the American response in general, looking at what was in place on the ground and at sea and in the air, but we'll focus just really on the air side. Suffice it to say, the ground forces that were in Korea in 1950 were largely um, a speed bump. Uh, They could not in any sense on their own be expected to hold off a North Korean advance, certainly a very powerful North Korean advance. And although uh, some have criticized them for being ill-trained, ill-equipped, uh, perhaps not very highly motivated, I think over time we've come to appreciate that they actually fought just about as well as they could expect to. They, did, they, they performed in, in many cases quite valorously and fought with great dedication in terms of what they had uh, the capability to do. If we look at the Air Force in that time period, we had Far Eastern Air Forces under George Stratemeyer, and if you look at the organization of FIF, the guts of it are really three Air Forces, the 5th Air Force, the 20th Air Force, and the 13th Air Force. And if we take a look at these Air Forces and their areas, if you will, of responsibility, we see that it carves out very, very nicely, if you will, Uh, 20th Air Force, Okinawa, 13th Air Force, Philippines, 5th Air Force in Korea. We actually had, um, in terms of the power projection capability that we could project into Korea, we had a relatively balanced force. We had air defense fighters uh, based in in uh, Japan and uh, in Okinawa, and of course we had on-call air power in, in uh, the Philippines as well. We had a strong force of medium bombers. We had. Uh, strategic bombers that we could call upon but there was no expectation in anybody's mind really that anything was going to blow loose which is why this really became very much a come-as-you-are party. If we look at Navy command relationships we had the commander of naval forces Far East who uh, Admiral Turner Joy, who oversaw Seventh Fleet. Seventh Fleet when it was tasked to go to war very quickly put together a carrier task force from carrier division three called Task Force 77 which tended to operate, uh, which operated in the uh, Sea of Japan, and then a support group, a carrier of uh, light escort carriers, either CVEs or light carriers, CVLs, which tended to operate in the Yellow Sea, and they were, they were dedicated primarily to work with the Marines on providing battlefield close air support. We are more familiar perhaps, and you may be more familiar perhaps as an audience, uh, with, uh, with the Air Force side of it. So to talk about the Navy very, very bri- briefly before we move on, we basically have uh, a naval force that is, like the United States Air Force, uh, very much a force in transition. It has very large numbers of piston-engine, propeller-driven aircraft. Uh, it has smaller numbers of newer jet aircraft. Uh, it's still operating your World War II level of carrier, the principal carrier being so, the so-called Essex class carrier, uh, a 45,000 ton, 860 foot ship, straight deck, wooden deck. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, no angled deck, none of the attributes that we think of with a, with a modern carrier such as the Nimitz class carrier today. And of course, a carrier that consumes so much that you have to constantly concern yourself every three days or so with fleet replenishment. And the Navy's operating under another limitation as well. The Navy, by the way, uh, I I have to say overall, I think the Navy performed brilliantly given their structure uh, in Korea and what they faced. But the Navy had some some limitations. One of the real limitations was the fact that we had mined the waters of Japan. We had done such a great job with the B-29 mining the waters of Japan that a lot of their passages were still uh, unpassable. And so the Navy had to work around this Uh, with the basing of their ships at Yokosuka. Uh, Basically uh, they would have three carriers at sea, two conducting operations, one undergoing replenishment and uh, another carrier then back in Yokosuka on uh, 72 hour recall if it was actually needed. If we take a look at uh, Korea, uh, you're all familiar with the the Korean appendix if you will on the body of Asia. The pre-war boundary that we see, the oft-quoted 38th parallel, was just a line on a map. There was no distinctive geographical feature uh, that broke that out. There was no natural defensive position, no canyon, no river, nothing like that. It was simply a line drawn on a map to separate advancing Soviet forces in 1945 coming down after a very successful campaign in Manchuria and then the allied occupation forces coming from the south. And so this was basically the line that was set upon, and this was a line that was very contentious in the 1940s with incursions of the north down into this region, uh, some interest in the south and in in seizing areas in, uh, in this region. Uh, basically, if you look at it uh, in, in geographical terms, this is the industrial hotland up here, this is the uh, agrarian Uh, belt if you will down here. It's funny for us to say that when we think that so much what we buy today is manufactured in Korea, but basically in those days this was farm, this was uh, this was industrial, (coughs) a little bit like the American Civil War although this wasn't Cavaliers versus hard-nosed Yankees. Now if we take a look at the stages of the conflict it basically goes through four stages. We have the North Korean invasion that forces us down to the bottom of the of the uh, peninsula we have then Douglas MacArthur's brilliant invasion at Inchon, which then drives the line back up to the north. We have the intervention uh, in November 1950 by Chinese forces, and we have stabilization and stalemate then that follow basically as we push back up to roughly the 38th parallel from that point on. If we take a look at this in detail, we have uh, very rapidly uh, the obviation of, uh, of air power based in country. And since Korea was really the last great non-air refueled air war, there were, some, uh, there were some limited uses of air refueling in the war, very, very limited indeed. But since it was really an air war in which air refueling did not figure, uh, basically removal of those bases in Korea caused very serious challenges for us in terms of responding to the North Korean threat. They found the best way to do it was simply to seize the airfields. And they did. They overran them very, very rapidly. Um, having said that, we were blessed by a couple of things. We had powerful air power forces, sufficiently powerful air power forces based within Japan and uh, based on carriers uh, uh, offshore that we were able very quickly to bring air attack onto those advancing forces. While we were not able to halt them, there was no halt phase strategy here if you will, uh, per se, as we talked about in the 1990s. Nevertheless, there was so much attrition of those forces as they came south, but eventually they got to the point that they were simply not able to close that pocket region. The offensive petered out around the Naktong River. And so you have the invasion in June, late June 1950, June 25. By mid-August 1950, you have a full-blown battle taking place down around the, uh, the so-called Pusan perimeter down here along the Naktong River and they're not able to crack that. In this battle, and I'll talk about this, battlefield air interdiction strikes, close air support strikes were absolutely crucial to cracking the ability of the North Koreans to project uh, their forces and to to close that gap. Uh, Air, in other words, for the first time in 1950, air saved us from being pushed completely off the Korea, uh, Korean peninsula. I'll talk a little bit more about that. With the, with the North Korean offensive in the position of a boxer who has thrown a punch and left himself open and expended all his energy. Douglas MacArthur then launched against the North Koreans a brilliant masterstroke and that was the invasion at Incheon. It was an invasion that was made possible in many ways because of a great deal of reconnaissance activity so that we understood where to land, we understood what the tidal situations would be, we understood what we could get away with and I'll talk a little bit about that later. But basically uh, the Incheon invasion coming in here at this point immediately, naturally, caused a relaxation of North Korean pressure around the Pusan perimeter. The uh, army, which had been steadily receiving uh, supplies and building up here, was able then to undertake its own breakout, and you had a headlong rapid collapse of North Korean forces back up to this line here, uh, which was reached in mid-November 1950. It was a remarkable... Uh, collapse. Uh, I am often, uh, I've often wondered that uh, the the traditional view that many historians take is once we crossed the 38th parallel we were getting in trouble. We should have simply uh, gone back there and said see we restored the country thank you very much now you know stay out of our face. I don't think so I think actually what we did was probably right but the problem then that MacArthur and his forces ran into (laughs) was they were making such great headlong progress that they were forgetting the logistical tail that they would re- uh, require to support them. They were also forgetting the fact that winter was recovering, or was coming, and they were forgetting above all the intent of this big unknown quantity up here called China. And had they actually uh, been willing, had we been willing to sort of settle for a line of maybe one son over to Pyongyang, you know, in this area here, we probably could have sealed the country off at that point, stabilized our own situation to the point that we could withstand any assault, and then engaged in some sort of talks, and probably wound up with a Korea today where the northern border of South Korea would be somewhere up here, as opposed to along this line here. That's my own personal thought. I have no proof that that could actually have been accomplished. In November 1950, the other shoe dropped and the other shoe, of course, was the Chinese counterattack, which was very powerful, very robust, and overwhelmed uh, Allied forces very, very quickly. It, it led to a basically a headlong collapse in the, uh, in the West, in this portion, and it led to a more structured withdrawal here, uh, typified by the withdrawal from the uh, reservoirs uh, down to the port of Hangnam, in both cases, you had a sea evacuation, which took off large numbers of forces and uh, also uh, friendly Korean forces and as many refugees as we could haul as well and brought them down to the south. But this robust advance here basically uh, obviated all the advances that, that we had achieved under, uh, under the Magatha strategy, pushed us back across the 38th parallel, pushed us back across uh, below Seoul, down to this line here, uh, which uh, was reached in January of 1951. Uh, this was the nadir, if you will, of our fortunes following the, uh, the, the uh, Incheon's success. And it was caused really by the, the, uh, the thing, uh, the, the one big thing that I pointed out here, and that was a complete underestimation and overconfidence that China would not, uh, would not involve itself in the war. Once again, second time in 1950, once again air plays the absolute critical role in ensuring that we are once again not thrown off the, uh, off the Korean Peninsula. It steadily attrited the, the forces uh, of the North Korean forces as they were coming down and I'll once again mention that a little bit later when I get into mission roles and missions and uh, use of military power. That set the stage really for a stabilization Uh, of the front because what happened after that point was uh, in the face of intense resistance we fought our way back up to the 38th parallel and then to what was a more defensible position defined by ridge lines and so actually from this point on the war becomes World War One in many ways. It's not the World War One of the Western Front the the flat uh, trenches and uh, the, the flat terrain and trenches and things like that It's a war more akin to, uh, if you will, the war in uh, Italy or the Balkans in the First World War, where you have a largely static front in hilly terrain, mountainous terrain, uh, where uh, the power of observation and understanding what your, uh, where your opponent is and what strengths he has uh, plays very well to your success. It's also a a very intensive war in terms of artillery and from our side uh, in terms of air power. At that point, the North Koreans realize I think that that really whether they want to or not they're going to have to come to some sort of understanding and so we have the beginnings of talks which we of course associate with Panmunjom which of course still go on and we have as I I point out this this, uh, if you will line uh, armistice line which becomes an armistice line which is effectively rotated it's rotated about this point here from this flat 38th parallel to a skewed angle there And then from that point on, once the war ends in 1953, we have, of course, the long watch of Korea that continues to the present day. Now, let's take a look at some mission areas. If we take a look at the uses of air power, of course, air power is used in a variety of roles. And the first and most significant of those roles really is air superiority. If you do not control the air, if we had not controlled the air in Korea, we would have been booted out of Korea. No question about it. Uh, The Korean Air Superiority War was a much more challenging and much more complex war than we think. It was exacerbated by the distances that we had to fly. It was also exacerbated by the nature of the technology we had to use. The early jet aircraft were fuel hogs. Uh, This is in the pre-air refueling era as well. Uh, We're in a very hostile environment. And then we also have to undertake it within the context of a so-called limited war. This wasn't like World War II. uh, here's the environment, basically. Uh, if we take a look at the Korean Peninsula, as things work out, the air war is fought primarily in this area here. Once the Korean War, uh, once the once the Korean War settled down uh, in the in the uh, late uh, uh, 1950 time period, uh, the air superiority war was fought largely here. Occasionally, you would have. Uh, you would have MiG forays out to Wonsan in this direction. Uh, very rarely you would have MiG forays south uh, into this area here, but those were extremely rare. Those are almost like uh, showing the flag type flights. Much more typical around here later on, in the, toward the end of the Korean War time period, was uh, Heckler activity, where you would have light biplanes with bombs, flown over some of our airfields to disrupt things and, and, and sow confusion and attack aircraft and things like that and I'll talk a little bit about that. But basically North Korea uh, started, the, uh, started the war with a number of operational airfields. South Korea basically had almost like a constabulary air force. It had no more than about 20 combat aircraft worthy of the, of the name. And so when the, when the war gets going and the our airfields in the south get run over we find that we have to supply air power from Japan, from Okinawa, from other places, and then once, of course, we get into, uh, we are able to push, uh, the North Koreans further to the north. Uh, we're able to reestablish airfields, and then once the war stabilizes, we of course have, air operations then out of some classic bases here, uh, uh, K14, K13. You know the, 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 uh, the, the classic, uh, Korean bases that. Uh, have come down in, in Korean, Korean law. If we take a look at North Korean bases, uh, this is from 1951, but this could just as easily have been from uh, a chart from the uh, uh, 1950 time period. We see that there's a very robust number of fields here. There's a great deal of redundancy here. And so when you're dealing with the bomber force that we have in the pre-precision weapon era, uh, keeping these airfields closed is a challenge. This is not a matter of putting a few GBU-27s on hardened aircraft shelters or something like that. There's a lot of revisit requirements here. And those revisit requirements are by aircraft like the B-26 or like B-29s which are having to operate, <coughs> having to operate in very intensive anti-aircraft environments and the, uh, the expectation of aircraft loss rates is very, very high. What did we have in terms of combat aircraft capabilities to confront the North Koreans at this time? <laughs> Far East Air Force fighters at the beginning of the war basically were these three types. Uh, The P-51, the F-51 in Korean days, was, of course, a legacy fighter from World War II. Uh, A very fine airplane. You know, if we think about it, in 1950, it's only been in operational service for six years uh, with the United States uh, Air Force, if we take a look at the F-51D. So it's a very robust airplane, and it's a very powerful aircraft, and it's being paired off with aircraft that are much like it. Uh, the Yak-9 family, the Yak-3 family, things like that. Because we were concerned about night air defense and all-weather air defense, we had a variation, uh, a very interesting machine called the F-82 Twin Mustang, uh, which is also in the collections of the museum here, which had this huge rather oddball radar uh, stuck under the center section of the airplane, but which was itself a very powerful uh, aircraft and had basically the same performance attributes of the uh, F-51. We also had in theater the F-80 Shooting Star. Now the F-80 Shooting Star was the first combat worthy American jet airplane. It was not up to the latest state of the art of fighter technology. It was not a swept wing fighter. It was not a transonic fighter in the way that we think of an F-86 or even a MiG-15. But nevertheless, these sufficed uh, to take on the North Korean Air Force. The Navy which at this time tended to operate, uh, it was not yet in the swept wing era because it, it still had a concern itself with operating off these straight deck carriers which, had, which forced constraints upon aircraft performance. The Navy operated another World War II legacy airplane, a very fine one, the F4U Corsair, which was the Navy equivalent, if you will, of the P-47 Thunderbolt, an excellent ground attack aircraft and an excellent air to air fighter and the Grumman F9F Panther. Now the Panther was a straight wing jet airplane It was powered by an American aircraft, uh, an American engine called the the, uh, J-48, which was a derivation of a British engine, uh, the Rolls-Royce Neen, which had also been sold to the Russians by the British Labour government. So the Panther, when it was flying in Korea, was fighting MiG-15s that also flew with basically Rolls-Royce Neen engines, one of those few conflicts where you have uh, two aircraft opposing each other that have a lot in common. But the Panther, you'll notice, was a straight-winged airplane. It did have one thing that was very significant. It had an excellent gun system. It had four 20-millimeter cannon, uh, which guaranteed a very high probability of kill if it hit an enemy airplane. So in the case of the North Korean Air Force, it was largely a case of now you see it, now you don't. Uh, The gun camera film footage on the left was taken by William Hudson's F-82, the first victory that we scored in Korea. There it is going sayonara. uh, out to the left and there's another one that was shot down during the same sortie uh, on the ground at Kimpo. on the right. And that basically sort of set the stage for what happened with the North Korean Air Force. The North Korean Air Force was taken out of the fight uh, very very quickly. There were sporadic encounters from that point on but until the Russians got into the act in November 1950 uh, communist air power was not something we had to worry about. The guys in the ground with all the problems they faced from masses of T-34 tanks and a lot of infantry armed with you know burp guns and stuff like that. Nevertheless, the one thing they really didn't have to worry about on top of that was being attacked to any great degree by somebody uh, flying a Sturmovik or a GAC or something else over their head. Now the other shoe dropped in 1950 in terms of the air superiority war when we had the involvement of the Chinese into the conflict because that also coincided with Joe Stalin sending the Soviet Air Force into action against, uh, against uh, allied forces in uh, Korea. The, the war widened tremendously, and it became a very, very complex war. The reason being that this was the, the, the line, the border between North Korea and Manchuria, the Yalu River. And so this basically established a sanctuary, and so on this side of the line you had a number of you had a number of airfields and airfield complexes, particularly in the Antung area down here, and then up in Mukden, which was an old area of the uh, Japanese aircraft industry uh, in the uh, in the late 1930s World War II era, and uh, basically these uh, these became sources then for MiG operations in MiG Alley and when we would approach, uh, basically they'd they'd pick and choose the moment of engagement and then scoot back across the Yalu before we could get uh, up against them. This was a real concern for Obama people who were trying to cut supply lines, particularly cut bridges uh, along which uh, supplies were flowing from Manchuria into North Korea. That resulted in December 1950 in the United States Air Force sending the F-86 Sabre into, uh, into Korea. The F-86 Sabre was a remarkable airplane and so it's very interesting, I think, to, to take a look at the relative performance merits of the F-86 and the MiG-15. They are not, as some writers have alleged, similar airplanes. There's a lot of differences between these two aircraft. The MiG-15 had a centrifugal flow engine which gave it a little, oops, it gave it a, uh, a fatter uh, body, uh, larger diameter. Uh, it also did give it, though, a little better acceleration. Uh, in the early days of, of centrifugal flow engines, they tend to give you a little higher acceleration. Uh, it was a mid-wing airplane, the wing is located at mid-fuselage, the F-86 is a low-wing airplane. It has a, has a fixed horizontal stabilizer and a movable elevator perched high on the fin, the F-86 has a low placed horizontal stabilizer. (coughs) In the A model, the uh, horizontal stabilizer was fixed and the elevator was movable but the uh, uh, the the later F-86, and this was very important, had an adjustable horizontal stabilizer. And that adjustable horizontal stabilizer effectively acted as an all moving tail. And because of that, it's very interesting to take a look at kill ratios between the MiG and the Sabre. They go up dramatically after the introduci- uh, introduction of the adjustable horizontal tail because what that gave you, pulling lead on a MiG at .8 Mach number and above, the F-86 had a greater ability to command pitch authority over that MiG than the MiG had. Uh, now, both had interesting gun systems that weren't necessarily the best. The MiG was designed to do one thing and that was shoot-down atomic-armed B-29s. And it could shoot down the B-29 very, very effectively. It had a large 37-millimeter cannon and two 23-millimeter cannon, uh, different ballistic paths, uh, arcs for the bullets, so, of course, that was a bit of a problem. The Sabre, on the other hand, was your, your kind of all-purpose fighter, and it had the standard package we had had in World War II, which was six fifty caliber machine guns. The 50 caliber was a very fine, very hard-hitting weapon. But at the same time, you needed a lot of dwell time on the target, really, to kill it. Had the Sabre had 420mm cannon, I think you would have seen Sabre kills over MIGs go through the roof. Uh, And and that was one of the reasons that if you take a look at the F-86H model Sabre that came after the Fs, uh, the F-86H had the 420s in it. But the Sabre, with a radar-ranging gun sight up front, uh, superb visibility from that canopy, that was just a joy to behold. Uh, The Sabre actually was a very fine airplane. It's been fashionable in some revisionist circles to knock the Sabre, you know, oh, it's heavy and all this and that, but the Sabre did a very, very fine job. The MiG threat to the B-29, both the daylight threat to the 29 and the threat at night was quite profound. And if we take a look at the, uh, uh, that problem, B-29 losses went very, very high, 14 percent of the B-29 force in uh, men that flew B-29s, 14% of the, of the B-29 force that flew in Korea wound up killed, uh, captured, or wounded. So uh, that, that tells you that was a pretty costly, pretty costly operation. Uh, every day, you know, we don't think of Korea much as a strategic bombing war because there wasn't that much industry or that much seeming uh, industry in, in North Korea. But every single day you had on average 20 B-29 strategic bomber sorties over the North. Most of those, after the initial days of the war, which had gone after ammunition sites, barracks, port facilities, things like that, most of those were going after interdiction targets, they were going after bridges, they were going after depots, Uh, but at the same time, that put them in risk of being attacked by MiGs. The photo that you see here was taken from a B-29, a very famous one called Command Decision, and that shows three MiGs uh, making passes on the formation that it was in. Uh, how did we counter it? Well, we countered it with a lot of fighter escort. Uh, one airplane that proved surprisingly useful because it had very good long legs uh, to do this was the F-84. The F-84 is, is one of the major workhorses of Korea. I'll talk about it a little more in terms of the air to ground war because it's a major fighter bomber. It was uh, once again kind of belittled for being relatively powerless and requiring a long takeoff roll and things like this. But the F-84 air to air did very, very well Uh, when called upon to do so as an escort fighter against the MiG. The nighttime uh, operations were were more complex. We set up barrier patrols along the Yalu River to catch the MiGs as they came across the Yalu River. The MiGs that were coming across were Russian MiGs. They were flown by Russian pilots. They were queued by Russian-controlled, ground-controlled interception based at Amtung. We know this because of so-called Y service intercepts from a signals intelligence operation we had going at Chodo Island. What they would try to do is they would set out a formation of three MiGs, they would vector out the MiGs behind a strike flight of allied aircraft or a bomber stream and then they would try to vector them to come in from the six o'clock position on on that bomber stream or a strike flight, whatever it was. And it was typical Soviet sort of GCI control. We weren't able to break the GCI links, but knowing that we knew what to look for and we knew where to place our own fighters. The barrier patrols were conducted primarily by this aircraft here. It was an airplane called the Douglas Sky Knight. It was flown largely by the Marines, although a small Navy detachment flew late in the war, VMF 513. Uh, It was an aircraft that had relatively undistinguished performance. It's about a 420 mile to 475 mile an hour airplane on a good day, but it has four 20 millimeter cannon, and it has a very large radar in the nose, But to give you some idea of how large the radar was, the tail warning radar this airplane had was the same radar that the night fighting Corsair used as its primary radar. And it had a uh, radar systems operator, usually a petty officer in the Navy or a gunny in the Marine Corps, flying in the right seat. They they were very successful in their operations uh, on these barrier patrols at either frightening off the MiGs or shooting them down. We operated in the Air Force the F-94, uh, which was a, a variation of the Lockheed P-80 uh, via the T-33. It was a, basically a T-33 with an after-burning engine, radar set in the back end, radar in the nose, uh, radar operator on the back end, and then uh, 420 mili- uh, 450 caliber machine guns. There were later variants, uh, variations of this that, that carried air-to-air rockets, but they were not used in Korea. The F-94 had a uh, very complex but extremely effective fire control radar, the Hughes Fire Control Radar. But like most technology, it was considered so valuable we didn't want to risk it over the north. So for a very long time, we held the F-94 back below the 38th parallel. Only toward the end of the war did we let it go up north, and it did did quite well uh, when it did that. Now, the outcome of all of this, the air-to-air war with the Sabre guys going after the MiGs, the nighttime war with everybody else. Basically, the MiG was removed uh, as a uh, as a threat from Korean skies. You know, here's two. One, the one at the top is being shot down by a Navy Panther guy. The one at the bottom is being shot down by a Saber. I'm trying to be very joint in this presentation. And then here's the uh, here's the uh, Korean aces that are shown here. Now, this shows 39. There were actually 40. There was a guy that was credited after this this. Uh, Uh, was put together. He was credited with a fifth kill. But basically these are the guys that scored five or more MiG kills. Now at the time during the war uh, we had this figure 14 to 1 victory loss ratio, F-86 versus the MiG-15. And then later on we had 10 to 1. And then later on you had the cynics say no it was probably like 6 to 1. And then you had the Russians that say no it was 10 to 1 in the other direction. kid you not. But (laughs) You know, what's the truth? The truth, uh, the truth depends over time. You know, uh, if you take a look, you had, uh, you had uh, uh, some individuals that were referred to as honchos that were very, very fine pilots. They were some of the world, leading World War II fighter pilots that the Soviets had fielded, people like Ivan Katsidub, uh, uh people like that who, who were who were quite good and would have been quite good in any Air Force. So that on average, it's probably around eight to nine to one, something like that. Uh, when you had when you had newbies show up, the kill ratio tended to go very much in our favor, probably as high as fourteen to one on occasion. Uh, when you had uh, extremely experienced people, it probably dropped down in that region of maybe six to one, something like that. But on an average, I'd say eight to nine to one. Uh, there was another aspect of the of the air superiority war that I'll throw out there because it's one that that caused cons- continuing concern certainly at least through the 1980s and that was the idea of uh, night hecklers <coughs> and, and special operations type aircraft uh, The North Koreans acquired a number of trainer aircraft, some of these from the uh, from residual aircraft left over by the Japanese after they left the country and then others, the the ubiquitous Russian PO2, uh, like Polikarpov trainers, sort of like a steerman. and they would typically put a guy in the back end, he had a machine gun and he had a bunch of stick grenades and he'd fly over, you know, a pilot would fly over Kimpo or something and he'd throw out the stick grenades and try to shoot something up. These were very difficult to defeat. We set up night fighters against them, F-94s, we even had a mid-air collision with an F-94 and one of these guys uh, we, uh, you know, we found the jets didn't work real well. The, the aircraft that seemed to work the best was the uh, Corsair. <clears throat> if you took a night fighting Corsair with its radar, and the guy got up and he got dirty, flaps down, gear down, hook down, uh, he could basically hang in there and weave with one of these guys and nail him. And, and Guy Bordelon, <clears throat> a Navy pilot, actually shot down five of them. Uh, one of the more interesting photos is this one here. <clears throat> because this shows one of these heckles after it was shot down over Kimbo, but this is a, an ex-Japanese Army Air Forces airplane. This is a uh, Tachikawa uh, Ki-9, I think the technical uh, designation is. So it shows that they really did fly with everything they had. Okay, that's the air superiority side. Let's take a look now at close air support and battlefield air support. I mentioned this was a war in the scramble. At the very get-go of the conflict, the biggest problem we had was we were facing a rolling unfolding mechanized advance that was very powerful. The North Koreans, the United States Army was being pushed off the Korean peninsula by an army that hadn't even existed in 1945, interestingly enough. And the weapon that was really spearheading this was the Soviet-built T-34 tank, one of the finest tanks of all time, very, very fine tank. So how did we respond to this? Well, we needed on-call air power. And the on-call air power was furnished largely by uh, the Navy because the Navy had an aircraft that had extremely long endurance and another aircraft that had pretty good endurance. The first aircraft was the Douglas Sky Raider, which, of course, became the, 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 the Sandy, the A1 in our service in Vietnam. And then the other aircraft that had slightly less capability but was pretty good was, of course, the Corsair. We also made some technical modifications to these. Here's a... Sky Raider being bombed up, uh, you see the relatively non-aerodynamic shape of the bomb, but then the thing that's interesting is to take a look at these rockets. It's carrying 12 5-inch uh, rockets, but these do not look like your typical 5-inch rockets. It's because these have a shaped charge warhead. These are so-called ATARs, anti-tank aerial rockets. They were developed at China Lake, and they were extremely accurate, and they were extremely effective against North Korean, uh, North Korean armor. The Air Force with the P-80s, we were operating, the P-80 was a a workhorse of the war and performed nobly in any number of roles, reconnaissance, air to air, air to ground. The P-80s in the early days were operating from uh, Japan and they were very limited in the amount of time that they could actually spend over the target. Operating from Japan, they would get to a target And they would need clearance to hit a target within maybe two to three minutes before they'd have to turn around and head back to home plate. So it was a real scramble. And that brings up one of the real problems we had with uh, battlefield air support in uh, in the early days of the Korean War. And that was tactical air control. We found uh, found that Korea was a tremendous war for learning and relearning the lessons of World War II, that that people had learned then in the Western Desert, carried into the invasion of Italy, carried then into the invasion of France in 1944, and all through the breakout uh, on uh, coordination between air land forces, co-locating air air and ground headquarters, and air to ground communications so that everybody could come up on a net and nobody would jam uh, somebody else off. Well, what we did very quickly was rely on airborne controllers. We took the venerable T-6, tremendous aircraft, put an observer in the back end, and equipped the guy with a bunch of radios. And then we did something that had been done in in 12th Army Group in World War II, and that is we took Air Force guys, put them in Jeeps, equipped them with radios to undertake uh, tactical air control liaison from the front. It worked pretty well but there were a number of disconnects over the fall of 1950 uh, before we got things to work, uh, to work smoothly. We, uh, the complexity of it can kind of be, uh, be seen in this where, where it kind of shows the relationships you have between tactical air control parties in the ground, air controllers aloft, strike aircraft coordinators, and then strike forces coming in and then the ground forces that they're working with on the ground. Response times uh, early on tended to be 45 minutes to an hour. That was unsatisfactory. Uh, we eventually got that down to about, by, by the end of 1950, we were getting that down to the 15, 20 minute time. Sometimes even shorter if we had rotating, on-call, orbiting flight strikes, uh, strike flights uh, operating uh, directly overhead. Now, having said that, uh, What's very, very interesting is that the um, the position the commanders had was that battlefield air control was working pretty well with the exception of one guy. Unfortunately the one guy happened to be chief of staff to the theater commander uh, uh, who was Douglas MacArthur, the chief of staff Edward Arland and Almond went back to the United States and said, this isn't working at all. And I know because I graduated from the Air Corps Tactical School back in the 1930s as an infantry guy. And the Air Force guys don't care about me. And they want to keep all their airplanes themselves. And they're not giving us the kind of support we need. And that became, that, it's a little bit like the McChrystal business today. It became the big headlines in the American newspapers. Oh my God, You know we're losing the war because the Air Force isn't willing to stick its neck out and help the little guy in the ground. Well, you know, it was absolutely rubbish, as, as we will see from a couple of quotes here from army people very, very shortly. But that became kind of a typecast model that drove a lot of other thinking. Uh, having said that, uh, once we actually, uh, you know, once we absorbed that North Korean blow, once we went back up north into the Yalu, once we got pushed back by the Chinese where the same kind of air control procedures once again worked very, very well for us, we had some other interesting examples of what would be called uh, interdiction strikes or battlefield air, uh, air support strikes, but but not the kind of things that you would would classically recognize. One of the most most interesting one is in uh, May 1951, as the so-called Huachon Dam strike. As we were moving back up to the 38th parallel, the communists were impounding waters behind the Huachon Dam in hopes of releasing them to literally wash away the advancing UN forces as we came up below the dam. This would have this would have wiped out a lot of lines of communication stuff like this. Probably wouldn't have really killed anybody but it would have certainly been a logistical inconvenience. How to get rid of this? Well we couldn't very well take down the dam that would that would achieve the desired effects but we could try to achieve a programmed release of those waters. Now how to do that? Well the Navy had just the weapon. It was called the torpedo. We had Douglas Skyraider uh, ADs uh, operating uh, off. I believe it was the carrier Boxer carrying. I may be wrong on that. Maybe Valley Forge, and they were operating. Um, they were operating torpedo-laden ADs, and they came over the impounded waters of Huatron Dam, and you can actually see the streaks from the torpedo uh, wakes in the water and blew away the locks. And of course, you've got the program release. You see the water gushing down already from some of these and uh, you know the water vented to the point where they couldn't do anything about it we were uh, very concerned about trying to uh, intimidate psychologically the the uh, North Korean forces to uh, to crack this uh, resistance to us and so just like we did in the Gulf War we had the introduction of propaganda leaflets you know uh, stay away from your unit you know stay away from this stay away from that and this, this was one that, that called on the power of the so-called flying tiger, a very powerful mythic symbol, you know, basically saying, uh, don't fight us and, and, you know, come to us and, and uh, uh, give up, otherwise you will face some sort of grisly and horrible death. By Biolab seems to have worked fairly well. The, the, common, the common currency when we interrogated POWs in Korea, um, much like, by the way, in Iraq, if you take a look at the battlefield, yes, uh, the battlefield interrogation reports of POWs after the Iraq war, was why did you surrender? Because of air attack. Because of fear of air attack. I was dislocated. I was afraid. It was aimed at me personally. I thought I would die. That sort of thing. Very, very interesting. The bottom line here being is if you take a look at the command position from people who really are in the know, uh, you see that there's none of this Edward Alman type stuff about air power is not working. Uh, Douglas MacArthur, you know. Uh, Not a fellow to give compliments generously uh, was, I think, uh, quite enthusiastic here by his standards. And certainly if you take a look at Walton Walker, who unfortunately died in a jeep accident on the road in 1951, uh, that statement, I think, speaks largely for itself. If it had not been for the air support that we received from the 5th Air Force, and he could have added the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps, we would not have been able to stay in Korea. Now, if we move on then to the interdiction war... The interdiction war was a more complex war <coughs> in many ways. The, the close air support war was an in extremis air war. You know, people literally coming over the ridge or coming right at you. The, the, the debate in the close air support war was which model worked. The Air Force model, the U.S. Marine Corps model. The U.S. Marine Corps model was based on delivering fire directly in front of the troops. The Air Force model, which followed standard Army, Army-Air Force relationships, FM 31-35 said, Air support operates from the artillery line up to the the bomb line. What people missed in this fire controlled, uh, this uh, close air support debate was if you took a look at the overlay of Marine close air support and Air Force Army close air support doctrine, it covered the entire battle space, which is exactly what you would want it to do. The interdiction war was one that there was a much more sharp delineation of responsibility between... uh, the, the operable parties. We had basically the Navy assume responsibility for interdiction over this portion of Korea including this little inshoot here on Yangdok on the rail line operating from carriers in Task Force 77 which was normally based right about here and we had the Air Force take this area here and then you had strategic bombers which operated over this, entire, over this entire area as they were tasked to meet whatever pre- uh, precise requirement that they were required to meet. Um, Korea was not a very well developed country with the kind of infrastructure that if you destroyed it, it would inflict a permanent sense of denial uh, upon the North Korean forces. Therefore interdiction became extremely problematical from the get go. I showed two aircraft that were used in that role. <coughs> One of them is the, uh, sorry, let's go back. One of them is the ubiquitous uh, Douglas B-26, the A-26 of World War II, tremendously versatile airplane, used for a variety of roles in Korea. And the other is the F-2H Banshee, which was a twin-engine uh, marine, uh, a Navy and Marine Corps jet fighter, uh, two small jet engines, J-34 engines, one in each wing route, but a very, very effective airplane in its own right. This is the, this is the airplane that's in James Mishner's novel, the, the Bridges of Toko-Ree, although in the movie they use the Grumman F-9F. Road and rail strikes, I think uh, these two photos kind of show the problem with road and rail strikes. We have here a Panther uh, F-9. Uh, You can see the dive breaks out on it, and it's uh, going out, uh, taking on this road, and you can see that there's a crater from a previous hit here. But you realize, you know, if I blow away this road, it's probably not going to inconvenience people too much. And then you take a look at this rail strike over here, moving this rail bed, same sort of thing, you know, there's the crater of the bomb, the rail line uh, clearly is disrupted, but how long is that going to be, how long is that going to be taken away from you? And so actually, if you take a look at the interdiction war, we had a term for it was uh, the operation was called Operation Strangle. Operation Strangle echoed uh, an operation of the very same name that we had uh, run in Italy in 1944. Ironically there's a lot of similarity between the two. Both sought to inflict supply denial upon the enemy. In both cases in the Italian campaign at that time and in the Korean campaign over most of the time we were fighting largely a war of stalemate with very little heavy fighting at the front but a lot of steady engagement at the front and so the usage and wastage of material and, and supplies was not high enough where the results that we were getting from our attacks would begin to have an impact on the foe. Now when the in the case of Italy in the Second World War, the German forces in Italy in '44, and the case of the North Koreans in uh, Korea in 1952-53. When they went to a higher level of conflict, where you started to have an increase in artillery duels in the front, when you started to have an increase in usage of personal weapons at the front, then that supply denial did start to make itself fit. We probably, we probably took away between 80 and 90 percent. There was an, a, a Navy technical intelligence study that did an analysis at the end of 1952 that concluded that we were probably taking away from them 80 to 90 percent of the supplies that were heading down the main lines of communication toward the front. But the remaining 10 percent that got through was sufficient for them to continue the war. The main value of strangling Korea just like the main value of strangle in Italy in the 1944 time period was that what it really did was it fixed the enemy forces in place. When the actual enemy fielded forces tried to maneuver air attack was there to hammer them and so it it forced them in many ways to go to ground and it reinforced this notion of them having to dig in along the front. We had some strikes that were more productive and that was the bridge strikes um, B-29s undertook a number of strikes on the uh, on the bridges uh, across the Yalu now some of these were a day late and a dollar short in terms of the very onset of the Chinese intervention in November 1950 but the strikes from that point on on closing the bridges were actually very effective on on preventing follow-on supplies from coming through most of these were dumb bomb strikes and it was very very challenging for how the, the uh, B-29s had to strike because they had to avoid obviously they had to avoid then uh, entering North Korean territory uh, I'm sorry Chinese territory and violating the uh, the uh, uh, Chinese sovereignty We did experiment uh, in fact more than experiment with uh, early precision guided munitions the so-called raison a early form of, of precision munition While it has been popular to say that the Raison was a failure, what's very interesting is that when you actually take a look at the hits, you find that as the crews got skilled in using it, the hit rates went up to 68%. 68% of Raison hits compares extremely favorably with the first usage of laser guided bombs in Vietnam in the uh, early 1970s. And indeed, at one period, they were getting over 90% hits, which would be very good even by the standards of Operation Desert Storm, for example. So the raison here, uh, this was, an, uh, you know, once again, Korea drove many things, and I'll talk about this, but not the least of which was a desire for more precision in strikes, because bridges, as they did in Vietnam later, became huge uh, flat traps. We undertook a air campaign, uh, interdiction campaign called Air Pressure, in which we tried to look at other ways to get at the North Korean uh, regime, and Chinese Communist forces. And one of them was by uh, war attacks on infrastructure, warehouses, power generation, things like this. This is the Suiho Dam, which was struck in uh, the summer of 1952. And the aircraft that prosecuted these attacks were, as as, uh, I pointed out earlier, Uh, very early on, the F-80. As the F-80 started to get a little bit long in the tooth for this kind of operation, we saw its role taken over by the F-84, which was a tremendously good fighter bomber for its time. And then toward the end of the war, even the Sabre got into the act. If you take a look at the introduction of the F-86F, when the F -F model Sabre gets into Korea, it's used uh, increasingly as a fighter bomber uh, Bud uh, Mahurin, some of you may realize that Bud Mahurin, a very famous uh, fighter pilot from the Second World War, Korean pilot, was shot down uh, as a uh, ground attack guy in an F-84F. One of the things we were concerned about, you know, we were always getting ch- targeted with this notion that we were dropping biological weapons and we were trying to, you know, destroy the Korean people, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. It's interesting to note that then as now we went to a great deal of trouble and difficulty to drop notices to warn people to simply stay away from unexploded ordnance. Uh, then as now. The airlift war <laughs> was one that was absolutely uh, crucial in terms of supporting what was going on uh, in, in uh, Korea. You know, without, uh, without airlift, uh, if nothing else, people wouldn't have had R&R, which was a tremendous uh, morale booster for them. But if you take a look at airlift, airlift brought, uh, brought a tremendous amount of supplies forward to the units when we were on the move. And uh, it's funny to be talking about an Air Force war in which the C-130 didn't play a role, but no, it didn't play a role. This is well before the era of the C-130. Uh, but this is the, this is the experience that encouraged people to make the C-130. It was a legacy air war. <laughs> it was a legacy air war with, uh, with aircraft that we had first seen employed in Second World War. Uh, we had the, the C-17 of its day, if you will, which was the C-46, a uh, relatively heavy-lift aircraft. Uh, the DC-3, C-47, uh, of course, which uh, went back to the 1930s in terms of aircraft technology. The C-119, which uh, was a mainstay of, uh, of uh, airborne operations and did some uh, very good work In as we were advancing north to the Alu and then later on as we were pushing north back to the 38th following the Chinese incursion in the recovery. And then, old shaky, the C-124, which was like the C-5 of its time, many of you will probably remember this droning around at seemingly uh, impossibly slow speeds on its way to deliver things, but uh, the C-124 uh, was a critical player in casualty evacuation uh, and also in, uh, in supporting us with, uh, with what passed in those days in the pre-turbofan era for heavy lift. Uh, RETI, special operations, search and rescue, uh, you know, critical operations. Uh, the thing that's interesting about all of these is, in peacetime, you never seem to be able to get enough support for them. In wartime, you can never get enough. You know, these are the. This is sort of the unsung part of it. Um, RETI, was an interesting story. Uh, we had, of course, some sophisticated. Uh, airborne intelligence collection using electronic uh, platforms like EB-50s, EB-29s. We had strategic intelligence with B-29s and B-50s. Uh, the Navy had the same with uh, Mercators and, and privateers, uh, PB-4Y-2s. Uh, when we take a look at all that, uh, that came at a risk. You know, some of those aircraft were indeed shot down, crews were lost. We mustn't forget that. Uh, Much more common, much more typical was tactical reconnaissance and some deep, special deep reconnaissance that was flown using basically modified medium bombers and uh, early jet fighters. The B-45, which was a four-engine early jet bomber for the United States, did not really prove to be a great success as a uh, reconnaissance aircraft in Korea. The reason being it was not invulnerable to interception. We had three in theater, one was shot down by a MiG-15 and and lost over the North. uh, That, by the way, was the first shoot down of a jet bomber by a jet fighter in aviation history. Alas, it was uh, on their side. Um, Much more typical were uh, modified tactical fighters like the F-80. Here's a Recce F-80. And then later on, the Recce F-86. Not many people knew about this. This was not very well publicized at the time. But we took a small number of F-86s, we modified them as high speed reconnaissance aircraft and operated them very effectively into China and into Russia uh, to get uh, strategic intelligence information. The experience we have here leads directly to RB-57, leads directly to U-2, leads directly to what we experienced, uh, experienced later in the Cold War with the A-12 and the SR-71 program. Combat search and rescue, Korea in some respects was um, kind of a, a nice anomaly. Uh, we had so much air control over so much of the country that we were able to prosecute combat search and rescue relatively deep into career and relatively frequently and get a surprising number of people out. Uh, offshore, if you could make it offshore, uh, we had uh, amphibian uh, SA-16 Albatross aircraft, we had helicopters everywhere of course and the mainstay of that was of course the H-19, a very very powerful Really, to my mind, the first practical, uh, useful military helicopter, one that was more than just uh, just occasionally useful, one that was a very robust system. But this too, this too pointed to the fact that we would need to get the helicopter into the gas turbine revolution, the kind of thing we experienced later with vehicles like the Huey and then the H3 and HH-53, and of course the predecessors of everything we know today when we think of MH-53s and some of the special ops we have today. Special ops included some other things. <clears throat> uh, we did a lot of agent drops. Uh, we sent uh, we, uh, Air Force crews manned uh, man high uh, speeds uh, uh, small boats and ran them up the rivers into Korea. And, oh, these guys really uh, were quite impressive human beings, uh, inserting agents and uh, basically what we were trying to do was also find rig- MIG wreckage. Everybody was really interested. What makes the MIG tick? And so there was this tremendous search for wreckage. Cornell Aeronautical Laboratory established uh, a lab where they had bits and pieces of MIG uh, carcasses all over the place. We ran some really intensive operations there, uh, some in, in uh, conjunction with the Brits. Uh, a frigate named the Black Swan played a leading role in, in pulling some stuff out. We actually, we actually towed it out a, a carcass underwater uh, to get this aircraft out. Uh, that finally led to a thing called Operation Moolah. Can we bribe a pilot for $100,000 to deliver a MiG? Here's the chip that says, hey, you give us a MiG, we give you 100000 bucks." Now, believe it or not, uh, we actually did get a MiG. Uh, a guy named uh, No Kim Suk, I believe his name was, delivered this uh, MiG-15 to us at Kimpo, uh at the end of the Korean War in 1953. He's now an American citizen. And uh, he's quite a neat human being. But anyway, uh, he, uh, the, sabers were in the, the sabers were forming up to take off and suddenly realized, hey, there's a guy dead ahead of us and he seems to want to land. And oh, my God, it's a MiG. And this guy lands downwind and, you know, taxis by them and sort of waves or something and opens the airplane and everybody freaks out and we have ourselves a MiG and you now have it in the museum here. But he claimed he never knew about this uh, reward offer. And as a result, uh, he, he got it anyway, but, you know, he didn't turn the money down. But uh, <laughs> I guess that was stimulus money, you know. Change you could believe in, but anyway, moving right along, um, wasn't in retrospect. Okay, finally, as I said, you know, when we took a look at the at the conflict uh, by the by mid 1951, it was quite obvious that uh, pending some tremendously dramatic change in people's fortunes, the outbreak of a war in Europe or something of this sort, you weren't going to necessarily see. Uh, you were not going to see a cataclysmic turnaround of the fortunes of the combatants in the Korean Peninsula, and as a result, we launched into this long period of truce talks, which bore fruit in July of 1953. Uh, we had the concluding of the of the of, of the of the armistice agreement, and we had the release of our POWs starting in uh, in August of 1953. What may we say then, uh, looking at this in in retrospect? Uh, what did we learn? You know, what was, uh, what was discovered? I, I think uh, we use this term, lessons learned. Uh, it's kind of funny. As a historian, I often think that what we really mean are lessons lost and relearned at a price. Uh, we learned basically that the World War II lessons of using tactical air power were absolutely critical. Uh, you, needed to have, uh, you needed to have an Air Force that had a capability and a competency in expeditionary warfare, going to war on a scramble, very quickly, no notice, uh, having the ability to carry with it the uh, logistical support, weapon capabilities, embedded capabilities to deliver decisive force. It had to be able to communicate with the ground forces, had to be able to to uh, respond to their needs. For their part, the ground forces needed to have realistic expectations of what air could accomplish. It couldn't be something that you simply called up routinely. They needed to realize that uh, it wasn't to their value to have airplanes constantly in sight, rotating over their heads all the time. You know, the airplane when it was out of sight, it didn't mean it wasn't helping them. It might be doing something much more valuable that would impact their life three days from now by blowing away an enemy command post or a bridge or something else well away from them. We learned, uh, and this was important, I think, in the post roles and missions debate of the 1940s, we learned the tremendous complementarity of Joint Service Air Power. Uh, you know you had these battles and they've waged since in war colleges and I've been party to some of them but basically when you took a look at what was happening out in the the combat theater you found among the operators in the field there was a tremendous desire to make things work and to find go arounds and cut arounds and solutions that, that would work very very effectively as well. I think the ma- another major lesson that we, we tend not to trumpet as much as we should was that Korea in 1950 would have been lost to the communists had it not been for the prompt intervention of air power. Air power simply made that, uh, the, the survival of that nation uh, possible. There were tremendous communication and doctrinal differences. I'll talk a little bit about that. And the other thing we learned was all forces needed uh, reshaping for the future. So what did that really mean? Let's take a look at some technology outcomes. One of the major ones was the greater emphasis on precision attack. Um, James Michener, the novelist went out with the USS Essex uh, and and came back from the war and wrote his novel The Bridges of Tokori which is a tremendous book. Uh, Together with James Salter's book The Hunters and Salter was an F-86 pilot in Korea. They are the two best accounts I think of the Korean Air War. But Michener's book was based on an actual event. It was called the Battle of Carlson's Canyon and it was the idea of bridges becoming flag magnets uh, or aircraft magnets and flak traps and, and costing you tremendous numbers of, of aircraft. Well we saw that replayed if you think about it in Southeast Asia, if you take a look at the Tanwa Bridge and Paul Daumier and things like that. What Korea did teach was uh, that we needed to invest in, uh, in, in technologies that would give airplanes standoff capability against hardened targets or difficult targets. And that took us down the road of rudimentary precision weapons. Think early walleye, something like that. But that eventually also, the ultimate fruition of that was the laser-guided bomb that we saw emerge in the mid-Vietnam era. And if we, if we go radically forward to the GPS-based bomb, that we, we started to see the potentialities of GPS guidance applied to weapons, of course, uh, in the 1980s and moving into the 1990s. Korea definitely accelerated the transition to jets uh, in the military services. Uh, the, prop, the prop, certainly for a strike aircraft, was inappropriate, except under very special counterinsurgency circumstances. And even then, somewhat questionable. But for a high-end, high-tech war, it, it didn't have a role to play any longer. Furthermore, there was a tremendous logistical price where you now have to support multiple forms of, of engines as well as multiple forms of aircraft and, and capabilities in a force. Uh, it accelerated adoption of aerial refueling by everybody. You know, if you take a look, aerial refueling had been used by the strategic bomber force in this time period, but after Korea, uh, basically we recognized that all tactical air power forces had to have the ability to pass gas between aircraft in order to achieve the kind of longevity uh, in uh, or duration in flight. Uh, to, to get a job done. Uh, it was absolutely crucial. The one area where we didn't do that was in, in airlift and we recognized in the 1973 Arab-Israeli war very quickly when our allies turned their backs on us and we had to do very long range missions because we couldn't get landing rights by various people, uh, we realized very quickly we needed to take the airlift force and make the airlift force an air field force as well. Speaking of airlift, <coughs> the uh, the legacy airlifters that we had performed very well, but quite clearly when you looked at them, uh, getting around in the DC-4 level of technology, the C-118 level of technology, the C-47 level of technology, uh, we needed to move beyond that. And that accelerated the move toward gas turbine propulsion, either turbo propellers like the C-130 and the C-133, or getting then into the advanced turbojet propulsion C-135, uh, and then beyond that, that set the stage that, that pointed us toward fan developments and, and uh, with other technological developments downstream, took us into the era of the, the 141 and the C5. And we had the reshaping of the aircraft carrier. The aircraft carrier, which is uh, a visible symbol of American commitment uh, in, in crisis and power projection, uh, The aircraft carrier came into Korean War, the Korean War, basically unchanged from World War II. It was a straight deck carrier, wooden deck. You had a, a landing signal officer out in the back end waving paddles to guide the aircraft on the way in. You had a hydraulic catapult and if you took a look at this, uh, you were air, air, having aircraft come aboard that were coming aboard sometimes at 150 mile an hour touchdown speeds. Some of the early jets. You had horrendous accidents. Uh, ten uh, the. Um, Combat activity of naval aviation reports, the so-called CANA reports, indicate that every time a carrier air group left, ha- uh, left port, when they returned to port, they had lost 10% of their air group through accidents. Uh, that's mind-boggling to me. You know, if you th- uh, but then again, if you take a look at flight safety, every day during this time period, the United States Air Force is losing, on average, not from combat causes, but losing, on average, operational causes, one or two fighter aircraft every single day during this time period. Those loss rates, you know, today, you know, you'd have, mul- you'd have multiple CNOs and chiefs of staff replaced. But the Navy, after the Korean War, completely reshaped the carrier. You've got the angled deck, you've got the mirrored landing system, the so-called Fresnel landing system, you've got steam catapults. The combination of those three, really, uh, which were embodied in the Hall the of 1955, the so-called first of the supercarriers, that really set us down the path toward naval aviation as we know it today. Okay. Uh, Doctrinal and policy, and this is the last slide, (coughs) Korea did highlight very serious doctrinal disconnects on issues such as air power employment and command and control, particularly over this issue of close air support. What came out of Korea was a heightened awareness of this and the Air Force undertook to prepare a whole series of Air Force manuals that were distributed on the employment of air power and the use of air power. It demonstrated, and I would stress this again, I mentioned it earlier, the necessity that military forces, particularly those of the United States, have to be, uh, have an expeditionary mindset and a validated joint force air power. You know, if you think about it, a superpower has to be able to intervene in a crisis region, uh, and in fact in multiple crisis regions, perhaps simultaneously, and win decisively in those crisis regions against opponents who only have to be concerned about what's happening in their own backyard. And that's a very serious challenge. It's a challenge that we continue to face today, particularly at a time of drawdown, aging force, stuff like this. And finally, uh, if nothing else, we can look at the Korean War, the first jet war and the first war that the United States Air Force fought after its creation. The Korean War certainly validated the creation of an independent United States Air Force. I'm very happy to have been able to present this briefing to you tonight, and I'll be very happy now to take any questions you have.